You're listening to The Brook in Madison, Alabama. Love it. I have no knowledge of anything about Sunski Shades except that they have a lifetime warranty. And I've done some research, and it is true. If your dog eats them, they'll give you new ones. If, like, for instance, you're in the ocean, and you get pummeled by a wave, and they fall off your face, and you can't find them, they'll replace them. This kind of thing appeals to me. Uh, because I know that I am going to lose, scratch, mess up shades. It appeals to me because I really, really like guarantees. And you probably do as well. That being said, if you're like me, uh, you were probably watching that and something in you was going, what's the catch? Like, what's the, the loophole I'm missing? We're all kind of skeptical because of the fact that we've all experienced it where um, we, we've, we've gotten the savings or whatever it is, but we missed reading the fine print and we wound up getting hosed. Um, we're all expecting that the day after the warranty ends, that whatever that thing is, is just going to die. Um, guarantees are great, but most of them in this world don't amount to much. Well, the Apostle Peter... He wrote two letters, and we've got them both at the end of the New Testament. And in the second one that he writes, um, Peter says that we have guarantees in Jesus Christ that will not be broken. They will not be broken. If you'll take a look with me for a second, I actually want to start there this morning in 2 Peter, and then we'll move over to John. But in 2 Peter chapter 1... This is where um, Peter says that God's divine power is granted to us all that we need in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to tell us of all of these riches and things that are afforded to us in Christ and the guarantee of those things. And then Peter says, and because of this, look at verse 10. He says, therefore, brothers, because of all of those things, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Charles Spurgeon once said, we should not have been commanded to give diligence to make our calling and election sure if it were not right for us to be sure. I am sure it is right for a child of God to know that God is his father and never to have question in his heart as to his sonship. Friends, do you know that you can know where you stand with God? You can know. Not only that, God desires that you know where you stand with him. He desires that you know that you belong to him. John, in his gospel, um, at the end of the gospel, very, very clearly um, states, this is why I, I wrote this gospel. This is why I shared with you everything that I saw and that I heard and that I experienced of Jesus Christ. If you turn there for a second 
to the gospel of John in chapter 20. He says in verse 31, these are written, I I wrote all of this so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. I wrote this so that you may believe in Jesus Christ and have life in his name. Well, now John's going to tell us again, very, very clearly why he's written this letter. If you look in 1 John with me, in chapter 5, John begins this very last, last section by saying this, verse 13, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know. John desires, because God desires, that you and I would have confidence in knowing John's now going to close his letter by emphasizing why it's so vital that we have confidence in the Father and in our relationship with him as his sons and daughters. Take a look again here with me. 1 John chapter 5. We're going to read that verse again and and move forward. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. So John says that we need confidence so that we will ask. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. We need confidence so that we will approach the Father, so that we will come and ask. Friends, if how you pray and what you ask for, what you pray, reveals what your confidence in the Father is, what does the evidence say? Let me repeat that because I want you to think through it. If how we pray... And what we ask for, if that's the evidence of our confidence in the Father, what does the evidence say? Let's talk for a moment about the what, uh, about the issue of what we ask for. In Mark's gospel in chapter 10, turn there with me. Um, Mark's gospel chapter 10, Mark tells the story of Jesus is going into Jericho. And there's a man there by the name of Bartimaeus. In fact, when I said his name, Bartimaeus, there were probably many of you that thought in your head, oh, Brian, you mean blind Bartimaeus. That's right. The guy's been blind his whole life. This is what he's known for. Maybe you grew up with a guy and he was known as Stinky Pete or something like that. Okay. Well, Bartimaeus, everybody knows he's blind. Jesus enters into Jericho and Bartimaeus hears that Jesus is coming and he starts screaming and shouting, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody wants Bartimaeus to shut up. Don't cause a ruckus. Leave Jesus alone. But Jesus hears him and Jesus comes over to him. And look with me in verse 51. Jesus asked Bartimaeus, what do you want me to do for you? You got the Son of God asking you that question. 
It's pretty wide open. What do you think Bartimaeus is going to say? You know, Jesus, a good steak. That, that will be excellent right now. Jesus, could you help me find a better spot at the front of the city? Nope, this is not hungry Bartimaeus. This is blind Bartimaeus. And so he asked for exactly what you and I would expect him to ask for. He says, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus, I want to see. I've never seen anything before in my entire life. I just want to be able to see. And Jesus said, your faith has made you well. Bam, Bartimaeus could see. Annually, my son, and I can talk about him because he's not here this morning, asks for a new baseball bat. Um, Nathan has never come and said, hey, dad, for my birthday, could y'all get me a bat? And I say, well, what, what kind? Oh, you know, you pick. No. It doesn't happen that way. Last year was 2018. And I can very clearly tell you that what we needed was the 2019 just-released Louisville Slugger Prime BB Core bat, 32 inches long. Okay? Nathan asked very specifically... And when he does, it reveals something about what he thinks about our relationship. If you go back to Bartimaeus, what does it reveal about what Bartimaeus believes about Jesus that he would lay it all out on the line? If ever there's been risk, it's to ask for the one thing that you want. And he lays it out there. I want to see Jesus if you've seen the movie A Christmas Story, which you've had plenty of time by now, if you haven't, I don't know what you're waiting for. You know, Ralphie doesn't just want a BB gun. He wants a Red Rider carbon action 200 whatever shot uh, BB gun with a compass in the stock and a thing that tells time. Because he asked for that specific thing 30 times during the movie. But if you've seen it, you also know that Ralphie seems to have gone to all the wrong people. His teacher, his mom, Santa. If you've seen the movie, who comes through with the gun? His father. He's not vague or ambiguous. Neither is Bartimaeus. We need to take this to heart in what we ask of the Father and how we come. And the reason is because what you ask for in a gift, it reveals what you believe about the giver. What you and I ask for of the Father, it reveals what we believe about Him. In the book of Acts... John and Peter are coming into the temple area, Solomon's portico, and they see this man and he's yelling, hey, how about some money? And Peter says, we don't have any money, which I guarantee you they didn't. But he said, what we do have, we'll give to you in the name of Jesus, be healed. The man's healed. Everyone begins to go crazy. The Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, everybody, all the religious officials, they're coming unglued. 
we got to do something about this. They arrest Peter and John. They beat them up. They drag them before the court. But they ultimately know we can't arrest these guys. We can't do anything to them. Or the crowd will probably come in here and kill us. So we're going to have to let them go. But I tell you what, let's beat them one more time. And then we'll give them some instructions. And they drag Peter and John before them. And they say this. You, you are no longer allowed to talk about Jesus. You're no longer allowed to go out there in Jesus' name. And I can just imagine John going, uh, Peter just going, you know, snickering at them like, well, you can do what you want. But as far as we are concerned, we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard, of, of what Jesus has done in our lives. And they let him go. And if you look in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John immediately go and gather their friends, and they begin praying. They begin pouring out praise to God. They lift their voices together, sovereign Lord of the earth, and they, they praise the Lord. And then they begin asking God to do something. Look with me in Acts 4, 29. They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. You notice that they were not vague or, or just kind of uh, beating around the bush about what they were coming with. And let's just also acknowledge that they asked for something that I don't know that we would. Because if we'd just been beaten and just been released and said, hey, you can go, but shut up. Don't talk about Jesus anymore. We'd have probably been gathered and praying, Lord, let a big boulder just fall right on top of all of them. Uh, Lord, get them out of the way. Lord, strike them dead. I don't know what we would pray, but that's not what Peter and John and the apostles and the people prayed. They didn't pray anything about the persecution. They just said, Lord, whether the persecution happens or not, Give us boldness that we would never stop speaking the truth of the gospel. And then the place was shaken. They asked God to move in power in this place, in this way, for this reason. There's nothing ambiguous or vague about it. Friends, we need to remember that prayer is not trying to get out of God what we want. Prayer is asking for what God wants for us. It's not us saying, hey God, in case you weren't paying attention, I, I want to make sure you know what it is I'm looking for. Prayer is us saying, hey Lord, help me understand what you desire for me. C.H. Dodd said, prayer rightly considered is not a device of imploring the sources of God to fulfill our desires, but a means by which our desires may be redirected according to the mind of God and made into channels of his will. And this brings us to another point 
that John makes here. Back to 1 John chapter 5. As we grow in this confidence and assurance, and as we learn to ask, we begin that to learn to ask according to his will. If you look back at verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will. Well, this, this raises a question, okay, if I'm supposed to ask according to his will, how can I know God's will? How can I know God's will? Well, there's a question that comes before that one. And and see, before I'm able to say, hey, uh, how can I know the will of God? The first question that I have to answer is, do I desire the will of God? The the old saying is, be careful what you wish for. Um, Be careful what you ask for. You just might get it. Well, you and I need to come to grips with, do I desire God's will for my life before I ask him for it? Because it might not look like what I'm coming wanting. Do I desire the will of God? If so, now I can be asking, Lord, give me wisdom, give me discernment that I might know you, that I might walk in your ways, that I might not veer from you, that I might seek you in all things. God, I want to know you, that I might obey you. If I desire to know the will of God, I need to ask. If either of my kids want to know what I desire for them, all they have to do is ask. Either one of them, if they came to me and said, Daddy, what do you desire for me? I'm going to tell them. I am a pathetic father compared to my heavenly father. So understand that his desire for you and I, and his willingness to show us that desire is very great. So now John, as he has said, you need this confidence, this assurance, so that you will ask according to his will. Now John's going to give us an example of one of the things that we ought to ask for. Look in verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. When we know that our brother or our sister um, is struggling, wrestling with, stumbling in sin, John says we should pray for them. John right here exhorts all of us that we are to intercede on behalf of one another. But now before we go any further, let's acknowledge the elephant in the room. How many of you, we're going to see who's being honest this morning. How many of you, as we were reading those last two verses, 
were thinking to yourself, what on earth is John talking about? Who's going to be honest? Okay. Because if you're like me, if, if, especially if you read or heard that for the first time, once we said sin that leads to death, you were done listening. Like, okay, you're going to need to back up and we're going to need to talk about that for a minute. What in the world are we talking about? Because I don't want to walk out of here today and at three o'clock commit the sin that leads to death. Help us out here, Brian. Well, I'm not going to go into all of the things that could possibly be interpreted here by what John is saying, but I'm going to address the most likely interpretation of what John is saying. I believe here that what John is referring to is sin that has either become so continual and consistent or sin that is so heinous in the life of a believer that God has finally decided to take them out of the world through physical death. Let me repeat that because some of you right now are going, I don't think I understood what you said there. You did. I believe that what John is saying here is he's talking about sin that has become so repeated and continual and ongoing or that it is so heinous in the life of a believer that God has decided to remove that person from the world by physical death. I'm going to take you home now. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Acts chapter 5, we were just in Acts chapter 4. The disciples are praying for God's power to come down, and it does. Well, in Acts chapter 5, right at the beginning of Acts chapter 5, this couple, Ananias and Sapphira, work up this scheme with each other to sell all this property that they have and bring the offering to the disciples. Only thing is, they kept most of it, and they brought a little bit of it. But they came in, oh, we sold all of our land and we brought you all the proceeds. And they lied to the apostles and they lied to God. And God struck them dead. And it says in Acts chapter 5 that they had to drag their bodies out of the house. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul's writing the letter and he says, Some of you, some among you, have become sick. In fact, some of you have even died for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. I don't know what those folks did. But apparently, they flippantly approached the table of God and senselessly, mindlessly took the Lord's Supper. And God took them out of this world. That is what I believe that John is referring to. But I will also say to you, that's not John's point here. John's point is, is that the people that are walking next to us, our brothers and sisters in Christ, that if you and I are living lives where we are vulnerable enough with one another to to be able to say, I'm struggling in sin, that we would know our brother or our sister is going to say, I'm going to intercede for you. I'm going to take you to the Father and pray that he would, what? That he would give you life. That's what John says here. That he would give you the strength to walk in the victory that Jesus has already won for you. We sang about that earlier. We are called to intercede for one another. How? 
we intercede for others. It reveals what we believe about our relationship with our Father. How you and I intercede, how we pray for one another, it reveals what we believe about our relationship with our Father. See, imagine in a couple of years that Libby comes to me and says, Hey, Daddy, um, I need $100. Don't get any ideas. I need $100, and here's why. And, I, and, and she tells me, and I think that's the legitimate reason. And, and uh, so I go in and get it out of my savings, and I say, Here you go. Well, her coming to me for that reveals what she believes about our relationship. But now imagine she comes to me and she says, hey, daddy, I have a friend, you know, so-and-so. Yeah, I know her. She's in trouble. And I can't really explain it all to you. I don't understand it all to you. But she needs like $500 and I don't have it. Could you loan it to me? And I say, well, I tell you what, I'm not going to loan it to you. I'm just going to give it to you. And, and if you think that you need to give that to her, great. First of all, that shows you what she thinks about her friend, that she would come on her behalf. But it also shows you what she thinks about our relationship, that she could come and that she could ask, that she could trust in that moment. And again, church family, um, compared to our Heavenly Father, I'm pretty lousy at this dad gig. He's got it down. And he says, come. Come and ask. Come and ask according to my will. Come and ask according to my will on behalf of one another. And I will give you life. How we intercede for others, it reveals what we believe about our relationship to our Father. And now John says, as children of God, here's what else we know. Look at verse 18. John says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know, as children of God, that the power and the protection of Jesus Christ covers our lives. It says here, he who was born of God protects him. He who was born of God in that statement is Jesus. Him, that's you and me. Jesus protects us. Jesus covers us. Why do we need that protection? Well, because the enemy is going to come. We need that protection so the evil one does not touch us. But that brings us to the next thing that we know. Verse 19, we know that we are from God... And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. As children of God, we know that Satan temporarily has reign over this kingdom. But you see, we know that and we understand it while also knowing that we're no longer citizens of this kingdom. We're no longer of this world. We don't belong to this world. 
and we are armed to go to battle against the enemy. Paul goes into great detail about this in Ephesians chapter 6. We know that Christ covers us and that while the enemy has reign over this kingdom, we don't belong to this kingdom. We are here to advance the kingdom of God and we have been filled and equipped by God to do just that. Verse 20. And we know. I love that he uses these words. We know, we know, we know. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Friends, in a world filled with temporary fixes, with empty guarantees, with illusions of satisfaction, we have the truth and the guarantee, Jesus Christ, eternal life. We know him who is true. And now John is going to close this letter. If you've sent an email recently or heaven's sakes, a letter I know it's crazy to even think about it. You get down to the closing and and it takes some time, right? Because you go, sincerely, that just, this is too intimate for sincerely. Maybe I'll sound real Christian. I'll say grace and peace or in Christ. I mean, we we labor over the closing. It's got to be good. Listen to John's closing. Little children, keep away from idols. Boom, I'm out. He doesn't even sign his name. That's the closing of the letter. Little children, keep away from idols. Five chapters, and this is what we end with. Because John is saying, little children, run from anything that would lure you or seduce you away from God. Run from it. Little children, beware of any other gospel. Beware of any other Jesus that this world tries to sell you. And here's another guarantee for you this morning. The world is going to try and sell us another gospel and a different Jesus. And I want to give you a few examples of this this morning, not to pick on people. Because quite frankly, I'm going to give you a drop in the bucket But we've got to be aware of the false gospels and the false Jesuses being presented to us out there. Let's start with Mormon Jesus. If you invite two Mormon missionaries into your house and sit down at the kitchen table or the coffee table and you have a cup of lemonade and chat, you could talk for two hours and Jesus is going to sound very, very similar. The problem is, while Mormon Jesus is God the Son, he is not totally sufficient for your salvation or mine. Because in Mormonism, your works, they are playing a part in where and how you will spend eternity. Meaning that the atonement of Jesus doesn't 
totally cut it. And I could go a lot further, but we'll stop there. Catholic Jesus. While Catholic Jesus is God the Son, he cannot totally atone for my sin or intercede for me. Because Catholicism says that there are works and there are things that I still must do. Um, Apparently, Jesus cannot sufficiently intercede for me because they pray to people other than the Father. And I need a priest to go to the Lord on my behalf. Well, see, God's word tells me that because Jesus has become the great high priest and I am now clothed in his righteousness, I can go straight to the throne of God. And I can go boldly. And I don't need a priest because I have the great high priest. Seventh-day Adventist Jesus is God the Son, but apparently did not fulfill the law or completely atone for my sin because if I do not honor and recognize the Sabbath, I'm going straight to hell. Unitarian Jesus, I don't even know where to start. Jesus is not God the Son. In fact, all he is, he's a good teacher and a great moral example. Which I feel like I need to stop for a second and address this again. You cannot say Jesus is not the Son of God and then say, but he's a really good teacher. Because... What Jesus taught was, I am the only Son of God. I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And so as C.S. Lewis said, you can't have it both ways. Either Jesus is exactly who he said he is, or he is the most egomaniacal crazy person that ever walked the face of the earth. So you don't get that. You can't say that just to appease some folks. Jesus is the son of God or he's not. Friends, there are countless religions, philosophies, even people who call themselves Christians out there that believe Jesus is a way to God, but not the way to God. And Jesus said, I am the way the truth, and the life. And John closes this letter, and there's so much loaded in this one statement. Run from anything that this world throws at you that would lure you away from the Father. Beware of any other gospel, just like Paul said. Beware of any other Jesus. And when you look at what Paul said to the elders in Ephesus before he left them and they were weeping and they were in tears, Paul didn't say, watch out because the wolves are going to come from all corners of the earth. No, he said, they're going to come from among you. They're probably going to call themselves Christians. And little by little by little by little, they're going to water it down and they're going to walk away. Beware. Little children, abide in Christ. 
cling to him. Walk and live and rest in his word. Don't love the world or anything that this world has to offer you. I'm sending you out into the darkness as light. Don't become seduced by the darkness or you you won't be effective as light. Little children, love the Father, follow the Son, submit to the Spirit. As we close, I want to go back to the beginning of the letter. John says, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I wrote you this letter that to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning we thank you that John, at probably a a very old age after a lot of life, recalling everything that he had heard you say and seen you do and witnessed with his eyes and Lord, he touched your resurrected, nail-scarred hands. Thank you that you stirred his heart, that you guided his mind to write this letter to remind us that we can now walk in the light. that we can seek after you, that we can have fellowship with one another, that we can come and confess our sin because you are faithful to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Lord, that we can now come into your presence with great confidence, that we can walk in the assurance of knowing that we are your children, that we belong to you, that nothing could ever snatch us out of your hand. And Lord Jesus, all of this is true because you came and you laid down your life and you have overcome sin and death.
you're here this morning and you have never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, we've been praying that God has been drawing your heart to him. Paul says in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. We pray that today would be the day of salvation in your life. For those of us who are Christ followers, we have the opportunity this morning to take communion. The night before Jesus died, he gathered his disciples. And when he picked up the bread, he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he picked up the cup and he said, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood that I'm going to spill for you. Every time that you are together and you eat this bread and you drink this cup, remember. So I encourage you, whether you you come alone or with a friend or with your family, take a moment and pour out a heart of gratitude and praise to our King because He is the resurrected King. He is the only one worthy of our praise. Lord Jesus, be honored and glorified in these moments in and through our lives. We invite you to come. Thanks for listening to The Brook. If you'd like more information about our church or what it means to follow Christ, you can visit our website at thebrookchurch.com.